federal government has world-class engineering expertise in its ranks. The same is true of public health expertise. What it does not have is a standing capability to fuse those two disciplines together with behavioral science to help inform agencies' response to crises. At least until now, a brand new organization called the Engineering for Public Health and Human Factors Center, or EPH, is now up and running within the Army Corps of Engineers. Research social scientist Dr. Benjamin Trump spoke about this with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Ben, thanks for joining us. And I think before we talk about the center and what you hope to do with this new institution, can you get us started by talking about the Corps' experience during the COVID response and what kind of informed the need that you see here? What were the gaps that that response identified? So from March of 2020 until March of 22, I served on a team of individuals from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, Engineer Research and Development Center that assisted FEMA, particularly Region 1, as well as HHS ASPR, to perform a lot of data analytic functions relative to COVID. You have a lot of dedicated emergency responders and a lot of capacity to engage in that work. But an emerging need was the ability to integrate vast quantities of data, categorize them, interpret them, and communicate them very quickly, often in a matter of minutes to hours rather than days to weeks. The U.S. government has quite a bit of capacity in doing public health, health outreach, and health analytics from a variety of agencies. And we also, at the federal level, have fantastic engineering capacity The linking of the two of these topics is where a gap has emerged um, and how engineering and engineered infrastructure informs public health and medical related challenges. So, for example, like if we were to build a field hospital or a mass vaccination center or address supply chain challenges related to health related assets, these are analytic capacities that one require an awful lot of physical, social, and mathematical sciences, but also are foundationally from the emergency response field. It requires us to think about everything from civil engineering on one end down to health literacy and health communication of displaced or vulnerable and underserved populations, among many others. What we have tried to do through the Center for Engineering for Public Health and Human Factors, or EPH, is to bridge that gap to make sure that engineering and infrastructure-related challenges have a clear research and development space towards helping with different health risk assessment, health resilience, and and health-based emergency response activities. So as a practical matter, what is the EPH Center going to do all day, every day, especially in a steady state kind of environment where you're not dealing with multiple disasters all at once? Right. There's a variety of different functions that we're trying to perform. So from a blue sky perspective, there are non-emergency functions that require EPH-related mindsets. Like when you're developing new workspace or new infrastructure management opportunities, or if we are trying to develop in preparation for a disaster, trailers or ships or other capabilities to house first responders and those that have been displaced. We're developing models and analytical tools that are going to be able to be taken off the shelf and used either in a blue sky environment, like if we are following a typical Gantt chart and building a new facility to make sure that the way that it is built doesn't have any unforeseen or downstream risk or risk or infrastructural risks among different emergency preparedness options, as well as infrastructure evaluation tools. One of the core tasks that we have in the near future for the next three to six months is to go back through over two years, 735 days of service that we gave for the COVID effort and begin to memorialize a lot of that work. And many were writing several publications or have recently published several publications for several journals on everything related to microexposure analysis. This would be how a human pathogen spreads through a workforce. What we do is we take every single room within a blueprint 
all of your entryways, uh, your bathrooms and cafeterias and hallways, all elevators and stairwells, and of course, the main places of work and your parking lots. We merge that into separate analyses related to how you get to work. Do you take a metro or T or subway? You take your own car, do you take ride share, as well as where you live and the household size that you have. And we can actually anticipate the cumulative burden of infant to the workforce. Now, our initial model was targeted at COVID to help guide for those agencies that had to be back in the office safely, quickly. We were able to develop something that was risk-based for that. But it can be attuned to other conditions, really any human pathogen. So hopefully reduce the spread of uh, infectious disease in the workforce. Because one of the challenges that we've seen is without the kind of modeling, it's hard to figure out what are some of these simple and cost-effective changes that workforce managers and facility operators might take to reduce the spread of disease without influencing or reducing mission effectiveness. So microexposure is one of many tools that we're currently working on to develop beyond the context of COVID, both for emergency response and blue sky operations, as well as for CONUS, continental United States, and OCONUS missions, such as the meeting that I'm currently at in Barbados related to climate resilience and disaster response for severe weather. Super interesting. So since you're operating, as you said, it's sort of at the intersection of several different disciplines, one would think you need an interdisciplinary team there at the new center. Is that mostly going to be organic hiring on your part, building your own team? Are you going to borrow experts from other agencies? What's the vision there? So through our COVID experience and through my prior work with uh, Dr. Igor Linkov at USA Skirdek, we have developed an organically grown team of engineers and social scientists ethicists and physicists among many computer scientists, everything you can think of. We have developed that over time, but I am currently acquiring funded reimbursable projects from different agencies and beyond, hopefully also from the private sector, that will will require further development and further hiring to build up the center's capacity. We're also partnering with a number of universities through different project-specific agreements Uh, that will expand our bench to bring in some world experts, more specific on individual project topics. So it's a mixture of both. You know, we are continuing to grow and uh, bring people from our existing team, feds and contractors, but we at the same time are always looking to grow for folks that want to solve very difficult and interdisciplinary scientific questions related to public health within the infrastructure context or are just very interested in working in something that is certainly hectic and fast-paced with emergency response, but can help guide the risk evaluation and decision-making process for senior leaders in the United States and beyond. Yeah, and so what are you doing to advertise this new capability to other agencies, and where are you finding kind of the biggest pockets of interest? Is there a way to characterize that so far? Absolutely. I mean, the big letdown with something like this, is a lot of personal networking, word of mouth. I have aged with a number, I think pretty much government department and many of the agencies within them over the past two and a half years for COVID related work. So we've been pulling from a lot of that, but we've also been working with a number of learned societies like the Society for Risk Analysis and AAAS, as well as some of the broader networks that we have within U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and U.S. Army. So from that, while we have all kinds of high tech that can guide decision making and quantify risk and communicate the social downstream implications of risk, we are still relying on tried and true methods, uh, reaching out to folks that we've already know and have met at different meetings. But uh, I'm always open to meeting or speaking with anybody for at any time for any reason uh, related to EPH. EPH is in a prove it mode. So, uh, for the next three to five years, uh, in partnership with USACE and other agencies, Department of Homeland Security and FEMA, HHS, and any others um, that we can attract continued interest from our prior work at COVID, 
the hope is that we can demonstrate value, be able to not just only defend, but improve the mission response for blue sky operations and emergency response, and then become a dependable partner in this way. It is a new way of doing business. We are science-driven. We are a reimbursable science organization. So ultimately, my duty is to serve and support others. But in doing this, it is a change in the business model that uh, yeah, even Erdic has uh, conducted for a while. And so the hope is that as we gain success, more publications, more emergency response across different mediums around the world, that this can be something that can be a reliable resource and gets uh, more permanent or at least long-term support uh, from different actors. Yeah, and I guess I'll just follow up on that a little bit. And I, I don't know how possible it is to answer this question yet since you don't know what you don't know. But but have you given any thought to if a capability like EPH had existed, you know, in its fullness and had proven itself out by the time the COVID response was starting, how might the national response have been able to be improved, look different? Does that question make sense? Absolutely, it does. So, you know, you have to start with a caveat that when SARS-CoV-2 initially reached, you know, it departed Hubei province via Wuhan, um, moved into the United States, there was a lot we didn't know. The hazard wasn't characterized, the exposure pathways were uncertain, and even who was at particular risk was unknown. Even with that, you can take very limited amounts of data. And as the disaster is unfolding, improved EPH analytics, rather than taking an ad hoc approach towards allocating resources and prioritizing labor, this can help you get in front of the risk. Maybe not with a precise number, but it can help you prioritize where do we send our very scarce labor, even if funding is not an issue? You know, which states or counties or census districts or workforce departments or folks deployed around the world, where is the risk the greatest? Where is the greatest potential for truly catastrophic risk based outcomes? As well as if these events do occur, what are some of the conditions uh, that need to be monitored? Relative to this, one of the things that we developed quite quickly was the ability to evaluate different supply chain challenges related to United States vaccine development. And then subsequently, we we're able to demonstrate how this capability can be applied to pretty much any consumer products imported into the United States. Tools like this, again, you're always working with prospective and simulated systems with incomplete data, but it can give you multiple legs up to getting in front of that problem early so you can at least marshal your resources and get your mission moving in the right direction. Dr. Benjamin Trump, research social scientist at the Army Engineer Research and Development Center and the leader of the new Engineering for Public Health and Human Factors Center, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know, sometimes we think of 
the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. and, and, And he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood, and I and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do. especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, 
You know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2 of Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. There's no place like the beach for the holidays. In Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, you get all the charm and cheer of the season. Plus, 60 miles of nonstop fun. See holiday shows at 10 top-notch theaters. Enjoy perfect golfing weather at 90 scenic courses. Be dazzled by five holiday light displays. And get seasonal Southern Eats at over 2,000 restaurants. This will be one holiday you won't forget. Plan your winter getaway at visitmyrtlebeach.com. It's a well-known fact that good sleep leads to a happier life. Okay, maybe that's not a fact fact, but don't you just feel amazing after a great night's sleep? Like the first night back in your own bed after traveling. It's time to demand more first night back kind of sleep. Stop tossing and turning and talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more.